0: Hello. by August of 1916, the combatants in the First World War had been locked in struggle for two years. While the German Empire had enjoyed astonishing and unexpected success on the Eastern Front, on the Western Front, things were very different. The German plan to bleed the French army dry at Verdun had begun in February and had months of further futility and agony to drain. The Allied attempt to break the German lines along the River Somme had begun on July 1st, and would go on to November with increasingly marginal and catastrophic results. If ever there was a time for both sides to consider a peace element, the autumn of 1916 was it. As Philip Zellico argues in his new book, The Road Less Traveled, The Secret Battle to End the Great War, 1916-1917, the possibility of peace was much more substantial than has been generally realized in that autumn of 1916. The failure to achieve it would have consequences that are almost too many to be categorized, and provides us today with profound lessons. Philip Zelikow is White Burkett Miller Professor of History and J. Wilson Newman Professor of Governance at the University of Virginia, past director of the Miller Center at UVA. He was also executive director of the 9-11 Commission. Philip Zellico, welcome to Historically Thinking. I'm glad to be with you. So, could you, for our, our, those of us who are not familiar with it, could you uh, please sketch out the uh, sort of catastrophic state of the First World War in the summer of 1916? Beyond the few sentences I, I devoted to it, and and sort of the grave uh, crossing, the decision point this was for both the for the Allied powers on, on both sides. Sure. Um, so, autumn 1916.
1: Uh, August, 1916, when the German chancellor secretly made his move uh, for peace and asked President Wilson to mediate an end to the war. Um, By that time, the war had been going on for two years. Um, In those two years already, uh, millions of people had died. The war already, two years in, was the worst war in human history in the toll of life, limbs, uh, cost, it was already two years in, uh, the worst war anyone had ever experienced in the warring powers. All the countries were exhausted. All of them were looking for a way out of the war. Uh, they uh, they did not see, uh, it, naturally, if there was an obvious military path to secure a victory, uh, that would tempt them. But Uh, One reason why peace talks were interesting at this time was because none of the major warring powers saw a good military option to win the war anymore. They had tried all their different campaigns. They had all failed. Uh, uh, The British were hoping that maybe if they could continue on for years, eventually they could starve the Germans into defeat through their blockade um, and wear them down. Uh, but they had no hope of being able to do this uh, for a very long time. The Germans, for their part, some of them uh, vigorously advocated for using expanded U-boat warfare as a panacea to end the war and cut off Britain. But that they knew that would probably bring the United States into the war and therefore possibly prolong it, not end it. That option, therefore, seemed unappealing to the German chancellor and to others in the German government, including the Kaiser at that time. So they look around, they're exhausted, drained, they see no good military way out. Um, All the warring powers were very secretly debating whether there was some way to negotiate a settlement. They had to do this very secretly because they didn't want to signal to their populations any wavering of their commitment to continue the war as long as the others were doing so. So they needed to find it, they secretly worked on how to find a way out. And all eyes turned to the great neutral power that was still not in the war, Uh, the United States led by Woodrow Wilson. The idea of using the United States to mediate an end to a great war was not new. Um, This is a precedent that was well known to everyone at the time because the American president, Theodore Roosevelt, had negotiated an end to the last Great Power War, the Russo-Japanese War in 1904-05. So all eyes turned in August 1916, the autumn of 1916, to the United States, to Wilson, to somehow secretly find a way out, and Wilson was eager, eager to do it.
0: Um, Can we... uh, What had been the objective say in september of 1914 once the war had begun what did germany imagine that it was going to do what did austria hungary what did they what did the 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 entente and the uh, oh gosh the, bo- the both sides imagine that they were going to achieve um you know yeah. most most of us have a sort of little bit of barbara tuckman stuck in our head if we took contemporary mm-hmm. international politics when we were a sophomore um but yes. uh, i don't know what would you what would you say the objectives, initial objectives were in, in, in September of 1914?
1: Well, that's actually the great uh, uh, odd thing. At the time the war broke out in the summer of 1914, this was not planned, in my view, as initially as a purposeful war of aggression by any of the powers. Uh, all of them had war plans. All of them... Uh, had ideas of what they would do but when the war broke out remember the war breaks out because of because a Serbian terrorist group has murdered the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne and the war breaks out because Austria-Hungary wants now to come with to a reckoning of some kind with uh, the Serbian government that it thought with some evidence was behind that assassination So you think about that. This is a conflict between Austria-Hungary and Serbia. But then what happens is different powers lined up on one side or the other in the July 1914 crisis, war breaks out. As soon as war breaks out, then you have to invent larger war aims. Hmm. Um, And uh, in a way, uh, now that you find yourself in a cataclysmic war, you start rationalizing the war after the fact and making up war aims uh, that will somehow justify the huge effort you're putting into this. And the Germans, in particular, and the and as they were enjoying their successes in the first months after the war broke out, uh, the German high command came up with some quite extravagant war aims with ideas of annexations here and there. Um, what? historians called the September program, September 1914, but uh, by, 19, uh, by 1915, as these hopes faded, the hopes of a quick victory, as they all faded, most of that subsides. Now the bureaucrats and some colonels are still writing uh, their imaginary war aims, but this is now a war of the peoples. And for the pe- the peoples are not all sending off their young men in order to get some strip of territory um, here or there. The peoples are all sending off their young men because they believe they are all fighting in self-defense, uh, with the possible exception of the Russian Empire. Uh, see, that what's not well understood, especially in the English-speaking countries, is, for instance, that the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians believed actually they were fighting a war of self-defense mm-hmm. in their belief in their mindset they were encircled by all these uh, enemies france and russia and now britain who had basically used the balkan crisis to ambush them and now their country was literally being invaded by the russian empire in fact in the early months of the war the russian empire invaded and entered german territory and austria-hungary Uh, in Galicia and carried out, you know, some pretty large depredations in Prussia and in Galicia until those armies, the Russian armies, were defeated and thrown out in 1914 and 1915. So the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians unite on their notion of self-defense. France, too, is united by a notion of self-defense, which is entirely valid because as soon as the war started, the Germans tried to knock the French out and invaded Belgium to get at France. The invasion of Belgium, neutral Belgium, then had the British thinking that they needed to come in in a way of self-defense because if the Germans conquered Belgium and moved to the Channel Coast, if they conquered France, uh, Britain would be jeopardized. So uh, all the powers have their, for the publics, again, I want to stress this, the publics Uh think they are all involved in a war of self-defense. And that's uh, the main reason why their commitment to the war holds together as long as it does.
0: And, and, and that's I actually mentioned- is key
1: to understand because it's the key to understand your, the theory of how it is you end the war. Mm-hmm. The theory that of how you end the war, which the German chancellor Realized and actively pursued in the fall of 1916, as you explain, you're going to explain to your public, we negotiated a compromise under the war in which we successfully defended ourselves, Uh in which we preserve our country intact and uh, against the aggressive ambitions of our enemies. He believed that story would sell for most of the German public. And indeed, such a story would have sold for all of the warring publics, for most of them.
0: Is this why then all these talks have to be secret? Because if you've got a um, a government, even in the case of Germany, which is based somewhat on um, um, sovereignty of of the populace, and the populace is believing that the government is acting for their self-defense, and the government says, "I'm going to negotiate." Um, well, then you might wonder if your government is um, really interested in your defense. That seems to be a sort of a firing offense for a government.
1: <laughs> no, I, I think that's that's less the issue. I think the issue hmm. was more uh, that it would look like you were uh, it, it would look like you were a, making a confession of weakness. Sure. If you were the first country to ask for peace, it would sound like you're the first you're the you're the person in the fight who is the first to cry uncle. Mm-hmm. Which uh, signal, which, embo- which would embolden the other side, embolden the other yes. side, say, "Aha, yeah. uh, they're cracking, they're giving up. Uh, if we'll just pursue this, we can get whatever we want." So, if you're if you're looking for a compromise piece, you don't want to signal weakness. You want to signal that, "Look, I'm perfectly ready to continue fighting on as long as needed, but we'd like, you know, but if there is a way to end this, we'd like to end this." But th- that's in a way why at um why they they needed uh somebody else to propose the peace talks huh. neither so. one of them could it was very difficult for either side to propose peace in a way that would be trusted by the other so they needed a third party to propose it and then they could all accept that offer they could all go to that peace conference and then at the peace conference they could uh the outlines of a compromise peace were actually relatively clear to all the people who wanted a compromise peace, which was the, uh, I believe, a majority faction in all of the leading warring powers.
0: And what were the, what were the outlines of that? Before we get to talk about the various the factions in, basically, and basically,
1: uh, yeah, the, the the basic contours would be more or less a return to the borders of, ni- of, of nineteen fourteen. Um, with some adjustments. Um, for instance, B- Belgium would be restored. The Germans w- would withdraw from France. Uh, probably uh, the Russians would lose Poland, and there would be some sort of independent Poland. Probably in compensation, uh, Russia would be granted some sort of rights through the Dardanelles Straits um, that would be guaranteed to give them an outlet to the Mediterranean. Uh, but the fundamental idea was uh, a compromise piece would go back to the borders of 1914, and then every, all the leaders would tell the story to their publics so that, you see, we were attacked, and uh, we successfully defended ourselves against the enemy aggression. The enemy was punished for doing it. Uh, probably in that story, uh, the, one con- the one major warring power that would have looked most like a loser would have been the Russian Empire but no one would continue the war for their sake. And the Russian empire itself was at this point um, tottering on the verge of of implosion and revolution, which in fact materialized in March of
0: 1917. So who, you you mentioned the German chancellor. So let's start with the Germans. Um, Who's the German chancellor and uh, what's what's his goal? What are his interests?
1: The German chancellor is a remarkable and, and substantially overlooked figure now by historians. Um, his name is Theobald von bettmann So if that seems like a mouthful, then just think of it as Bettmann. Uh, bettmann was not an elected uh, politician. Um, he's a, a tall, angular man, uh, uh, short beard, graying. Um, he's a civil servant. He's appointed as the chancellor by the, uh, he's both the chancellor of Prussia and the chancellor of the German empire, appointed to that post by the Kaiser, who is also the king of Prussia, which is the largest uh, country in the federation that made up the German empire. And uh, Bettmann serves at the pleasure of the Kaiser. He'd been in that job actually since 1909. He'd been in that job for a long time. Uh, he, it was his job to manage the German Parliament and the factions in that parliament, the Reichstag. It was his job to manage the whole uh, political branch civilian branch of the of the government and he was personally responsible for the management of foreign affairs he uh, uh, He was never one of the great right wing annexationists in the German government. He had gone along with the decisions that led to war in July 1914, but he felt uh, a deep sense of personal guilt, a deep sense of national guilt for the negligence in the diplomacy that had led the war. As he put it to a friend in 1915, we all have our share of guilt for this war. Um, He said that he sometimes thought of nothing else. Um, His own son had already died in the war. Uh, His eldest son had died in the war in 1914. So it was a um, personal matter for him. It shadowed him. Uh, By 1915, uh, the German Navy and Army are calling for an expansion of the U-boat war. They don't care if America comes in. Uh, Bettmann resists this and resists it successfully, month in, month out. From really from the beginning, from spring of 1915 on until the early 1917, for more than a year, he successfully resists this military pressure. Um, He uh, obtains the dismissal of the well known head of the German Navy, Tirpitz. He obtains the dismissal of the head of the German army, von Falkenhayn, in 1916. Um, He brings in another army team from the east a popular general named Hindenburg and his aide Ludendorff. He does this because he thinks with this popular general he will now be able to negotiate what he called a face-saving peace, a compromise peace um, offset by the fact that no popular general is in charge of the military. That's his plan which he explains to the Kaiser and which is approved by the Kaiser in uh, July 1916. And he then moves forward and asks Wilson to mediate an end to the war in August 1916. Uh, all this in secret, although uh, not long after he does this, uh, British intelligence intercepts uh, the messages to America and learned that Bettman is, is trying to do this.
0: Now, on the Allied side, there are also um, very prominent people, surprisingly, uh, somewhat surprisingly, who are also Moving towards peace. Could you describe you describe a meeting early on in the book between two of them, or at least one of one of them? Yes. Certainly. Oh yes. Uh, uh, when I talked to people about
1: the argument, I said, uh, "You know, did you know that America went into the war? You know, everyone knows America went into the war because of the U-boat war."
0: Hmm.
1: And um, then I said, "But the reason for the U-boat war is because the peace talks failed." <laughs> the first answer is, well, what peace talks? Uh, uh, see, under, the fundamental understanding of why the war widens in 1917 is misconceived. Uh, the U-boat war is, a, the Germans go with the U-boat war because the peace talks failed. Hardly anyone knows that the peace talks even existed. If you ask people, do you know, that you know the German Chancellor asked Wilson to mediate an end of the war in August 1916, they don't even, hardly anyone knows that happened. If you, for the few people who do know that happened, you ask them, well, what happened to the German peace move? And they don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, uh, but then once they, once they get over their incredulity at learning of all this after all these years. Then one of the immediate reactions I get from people when we discuss this among historians Hmm. is, oh, well, it it, it couldn't have worked out um, because of the French. The French were so determined to get back Alsace and Lorraine uh, that even if the British were willing to go along as the majority of the British cabinet was, by the way, also quite in secret in 1916, the French would not have gone along. Now there are a number of problems with that story, including the dependence of the French on the British, and the and the imminent collapse of the British finances to wage the war, uh, which the French were aware of. But put that to one side. Uh, one of the pieces of evidence I use to start the book is a, uh, is a remarkable meeting, very secret, one on one, in August nineteen sixteen between the president of France, Raymond Poincaré, and the king of Great Britain, George V. Uh, George V is visiting the troops in France, he's in Northern France. Poincaré comes up to visit him at the headquarters of the British commander in France, Douglas Haig. And the two men alone have a very private conversation in which Poincaré says we have to bring this war to an end now as soon as possible i'm just telling you this we need to uh you need to know Uh, i think that probably the american president woodrow wilson will make some mediation effort probably maybe by october when he does that we need to move we need to hear the terms and move he explains to the king that uh, the French public doesn't understand how bad the situation is. Uh, they don't understand how close Russia is to collapse. Um, he's looking for a way, a secretly a way out of the war. He can't say this in public. Now, it's useful to for, uh, to understand who is Poincaré. Poincaré is the symbol of the sacred union that united the French political parties to wage this war. He is known to historians as a conservative French nationalist and one of the key figures in the outbreak of the war in July 1914. So for all this to be coming from Poincaré is, uh, says quite a lot about the secret French views of this. And by the way, I believe uh, these same views were shared by Poincaré's prime minister, Aristide Briand, at the time. So. Um, And I'll note that uh, what I've just told you about what Poincaré told the king is something that uh, had eluded all of Poincaré's biographers Hmm. in both French and English. Why did it elude them? It's not because they were bad scholars. It's because Poincaré and his staff made no record of this conversation. The only record of this conversation exists because the king goes back to Buckingham Palace Calls in the British ambassador to Paris and debriefs the British ambassador on what Pointe had told him, so that the British ambassador will duly inform the British government about this, which is uh, which is exactly what happened
0: by the end of August 1916. Okay. So the, the George the, excuse the, me George V called in the ambassador to Paris rather than the prime minister. Correct,
1: huh. uh, the pa- ambassador to Paris had been the British ambassador. He was a. Um, a petty member of the nobility uh, Mm. named Baron Bertie. He'd been in Paris for uh, more than 10 years. He was a fixture. uh, uh, And so he debriefed Baron Bertie about what Poincaré had said. Bertie, who uh, was himself a a right-wing conservative, didn't like a lot of this, but he was grudgingly obliged to report it to the uh, war committee of the cabinet that was running the war effort for Britain. And he passed this word along at the end of August. But the only way we know about this conversation, uh, above all, is from Bertie's diaries. And we know it from his handwritten diaries because his published diaries in the 1920s omitted all of this. And then you have to get into some of these uh, British records. So Poincaré's biographers didn't know about this French position because it was it wasn't recorded in French records at all. It was recorded in these British records, which is so which was is where the, I found. It.
0: Was the so when that news uh, comes via Poincaré to the King to the Baron, uh, Baron Bertie, and then finally to the War Committee of right. Cabinet, has the War right. Committee already been considering what uh, the? Have they been reaching the same conclusion, or is this new to them?
1: no you, you're exactly right they had been so when they get this news, actually, this converges with their own considerations of peace that have been going on for months uh, the british cabinet the British cabinet had, had a very secret debate about whether to ask Wilson to mediate peace in the spring of nineteen sixteen Uh, It was an intense debate I recounted in the book. It went through three rounds, the closest in the third round. And finally, for reasons I get into, the British cabinet decides to hold off on asking Wilson to mediate peace, hold off until they've done their summer offensive, which will become the Battle of the Somme, um, and see if they can improve their position on the battlefield. There were people who were against that, but anyway, they they make that decision in May. By the end of August 1916, they've now tried the offensive on the Somme, which it's and it's increasingly clear that that's turned out to be a complete and disastrous failure. Winston Churchill, who's out of the government at this point, is already attacking it as a murderous failure. Um, So, put your you're in the British government. You had thought about asking Wilson to mediate peace back in the spring. You put that off until you saw how the Somme offensive did. Right now you see the Somme offensive is failing. You're returning to the subject of asking Wilson for peace. At that same moment, you're told, oh, look what the French president has just told the king about their desire to find a way out of the war. And then right after that, they get the secret intelligence that the Germans Have already made the move. The Germans are asking Wilson to mediate peace, and so, in a way, the British now have the are the in a way the one government who has the whole picture in front of them. They see Mm -hmm. that everybody is moving in this direction. That they they then have a very intense debate about whether to negotiate an end to the war, that goes on all through the autumn of 1916, and is stalemated. though it's coming very close to a conclusion um, around uh, the end of November, early December of 1916. Um, And actually the debate becomes, becomes the catalyzing factor very secretly that causes the collapse of the British government, the fall of the Prime Minister Herbert Asquith and the replacement of Asquith by David Lloyd George, who publicly declaims that he's going to fight to the finish. The British public does not know that uh, the crucial issue that had been driving the collapse of the British cabinet was this debate over whether to continue the war. They simply don't know that that debate is even happening.
0: So uh, before we get to the sort of some more details of that debate on both sides, um... You've said that uh, America, the United States, seemed to be the natural mediator. Uh, this, in fact, I believe the Japanese war plan for the Russo Japanese war was to go to the United States as a mediator um, after stop Russian incursions in Korea and then go to the United States to mediate the conflict. Um, why? But why the United States? Why Woodrow Wilson? Why not the monarch of the Netherlands or I don't know, the president of Switzerland, whoever that was? Um, why was the United States uh, seen as a natural mediator of the conflict?
1: Uh, simply, the United States was the only great power that was not in the war. Um, so it, it was the largest economy in the world by that time. It was supplying the food and munitions to sustain the Allied side, though those were paid for it in cash, uh, that, uh, and and loans that were collateralized, uh, fully secured loans. So, um, the but the United States was uh, uh, a pivotal player. If it it was it was the great power still out. It had the clout. It had the stature. It was or, it, it was uh, key to the continuation of the war on the Allied side, and um, in fact, Wilson, understanding all this, took steps in November 1916 to set up his peace move that effectively cut off the further financing of the Allied war effort. Could you, could you talk Allied about that? War effort, could...
0: Sure. Um, yeah, so that's Wilson... such an important moment, and, uh, and also then bring Colonel House into all this, because... This is all. The, no. This is both the high finance and also low personalities. <laughs> no, as
1: the, the American, uh, as we've just said, the Americans were in pivotal position, and Wilson was eager to play this role. He'd been eager to play this role of mediating an end to the war uh, from the start. He uh, to help place Wilson in American politics at this time and the politics of the war. Wilson is in a middle ground. Um, to, uh, to his right are the principled people who want to join the war on the Allied side. They are led by uh, ex-president Theodore Roosevelt. Um, to his left, so to speak, to use kind of modern terminology, to his left, um, they're the people who don't want America to be involved in the war under any circumstances whatsoever. Um, they're very powerful too and they're led by the longtime Democratic political leader, William Jennings Bryan. Wilson is in the middle. Wilson does not want to enter. Wilson wants America to stay out of the war. But he's not not determined to stay out of the war under any circumstances. He has set a position where the Germans have to at least limit their submarine warfare to give ships warning before they're torpedoed and allow them. Uh, if it's an unarmed ship, if it's an unarmed ship, the German submarines are supposed to give the unarmed ship a chance to get its passengers into the lifeboats before they sink the ship. That's it. That's the that's the one guideline he had imposed, that he had insisted on. The Germans have to respect some sort of rules. And by the way, in in insisting on this, this was not an unusual position. This interest in international law and so on was. Universally held in, in American politics and in a lot of world politics at the time, so come back then to Wilson's position. he's in the middle, and actually that position in the middle is basically where the majority of the American people and the majority of the Congress are too. So Wilson wants America to stay out of the war. He's uh, in that respect relatively realistic. He doesn't think America's interests are deeply engaged by the war. He doesn't really care whose fault the war is. He's not interested in these issues of fault. He's mostly just interested in bringing the war to an end with some sort of compromise peace in which neither side gets a decisive victory. Well, then, which happens to be the exact way you could get a compromise peace. So he's waiting eagerly for the British to ask him to mediate, which, as I said a minute ago, they almost did in the spring of 1916. And now, instead of the British asking him to mediate because they had held off, it's the Germans who secretly make the first big move, and they ask him to mediate, and he's eager to do it, but he puts it off. He puts Hmm. off his move until after the presidential election, which is in November 1916, because he fears that if he makes the move before the election, it'll be seen as a political ploy, and and so on. So he waits and literally the first thing he does when he is reelected is to turn to this issue. He clears his desk, it's the first day back in the office, he clears his desk to work on this issue of launching the mediation. He relies for help, then he leans on advice from his confidential advisor, a private citizen, an expatriate Texan living in New York City, named Edward House who is a uh, a curious figure uh, whose uh, distorted accounts of this whole period messed up the historiography of this for uh, generations um, because uh, he deliberately omitted a lot of key information that was later discovered in his diaries. And House uh, had been going along with Wilson and helping him <clears throat> but then <clears throat> House then um, doesn't want to do anything that he thinks will offend the British because he mistakenly believes that the British will heatedly oppose any move for peace. Hmm. He does not really understand the true situation in the British government. He's been, he, uh, he's been misinformed. He doesn't want to offend the British because the British respect for him is a key source of his identity and his status to himself. Wilson is eager to move. Wilson ends up frustrated that House isn't helping him. Wilson starts drafting the peace move himself, literally, uh, all by himself. And then he makes this move at the same time in November 1916 to use his strength over the Allied powers by cutting off further American financing to the war. Uh, He does this. Uh, he, He does this. He orchestrates it quite secretly through the Federal Reserve Board that gives a warning at the end of November 1916 that the United States will not issue, uh, no American bank should issue any loan to the British that is not secured by good collateral, physically deposited in New York. The British are running out of such collateral, which effectively amounts to gold, bullion, and easily negotiable securities. The British are just about exhausted in their supply of both, but they can deposit in New York. And so the effect of the Federal Reserve Board action is to uh, basically cut off uh, all further American financing for the war effort as soon as the collateral supply runs out, which it will in, at the beginning of 1917. So and with so the that, and in that a way the sands that, of the hour, yeah, yeah, that means that the British, the Allied will the Allies will have to curtail their war effort one way or another in the spring of 1917 dramatically curtail their war effort. Mm-hmm. The, the scale of the supplies that the British are buying, the allies are buying from America is greater than the size of the entire French war effort. <sighs>
0: Gosh. It's, it's an extraordinary amount of stuff is going over. We really have no comprehension. Yeah. It's really hard to explain this to students sometimes, <clears throat> just the number of horses and mules that are going over to Europe alone from the United States. Yeah, so the- the British,
1: uh, 40% of British spending on the war is being spent in America. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so they is, can't, really- and it has to be spent with dollars
0: Yeah.
1: and they are running out of the dollars. Then they have to uh, borrow dollars, but they, the bar, all the borrowing is secured loans secured by collateral physically deposited in banks in New York. And that's, as I say, it's, the british stocks of gold and of marketable securities in this, during 1916 in desperation they start effectively confiscating all holdings of marketable securities in british private hands in the country so that they can uh post this uh post these stocks and as collateral in new york all that is running out um by the end of 1916 and wilson has closed the door to any effort to try to uh, float unsecured bond issues, unsecured loans. So the kind of, in a way, financially, for the, those in the know in Britain, the end of the war is now in sight in early 1917. So think about it. Remember, note, the Germans at this point are the ones who have asked for a compromise peace. The Germans, and with no conditions, and by the way, the Germans have made it clear that they're prepared to restore Belgium just to show their good faith, without even being asked to make that offer. So the Germans have already made the move. The British and the French side are about to basically run out of gas. The Americans are eager to mediate (laughs) into the war on just this sort of peace without victory basis. Mm. You can kind of see then why actually this is coming tantalizingly close to a successful solution. Well, when you
0: put it like that, (laughs) why didn't it happen? Because now it seems seems absolutely that it would have had to have happened.
1: Yes, it would have had to have happened. Uh, The Allies could not have continued the war uh, beyond the spring of 1917, just on the financial grounds. Mm -hmm. And the Germans wanted an end to the war and were prepared to compromise. So uh, the reason it, it falls apart is because Literally, Wilson, by the way, Wilson strategically sees the basic situation about right. So the portrait of Wilson that I have in the book is actually a a quite complex portrait. And even though Wilson's failure, I say, is the most consequential diplomatic failure in the history of the United States. In many respects, the portrait of Wilson in the book is a positive one because his fundamental appreciation of this situation is so perceptive about the way the war needs to end. The problem is that he just did not know how to do it. It's, you can be extremely competent in diagnosing a problem and yet be utterly incompetent in knowing how to solve it. Um, you, can, you can diagnose a cancer yet uh, not know how to conduct the surgery to remove it. And that's uh, that's Wilson in this case operating Virtually entirely alone, with no real professional advice from anyone in the American government, This is which is another story, this is American government at this stage in foreign affairs is really kind of incredibly small and just a handful of people, and Wilson hardly trusts any of them. And the one person he does sort of trust, House, is no good, is kind of really a dilettante amateur. And so Wilson, who actually is somewhat competent in some things, including this orchestrating this financial move that I just described a minute ago. He's trying to figure out how he's supposed to choreograph a peace process. And he just does not know how to do it. But he doesn't know how to start a preliminary negotiation in which you uh, call for a peace conference, set conditions for attendance, discuss a possible ceasefire or armistice while the negotiations are going on, Uh, Figure out how to pitch this in a way that works for the domestic publics. Now, during the process, in a way, the various German and British emissaries almost begin indirectly tutoring Wilson on how to do this, but it just doesn't work in time. And this the story of why this fails is so surprising and strange that I, I, it's you have you kind of have to read the book to. Yeah. To fully uh, appreciate, just as you have, just how strange this story is,
0: and ultimately,
1: but ultimately the bottom line is because as Wilson fails, the Germans give up on him. Yeah, and once the Germans give up, it's like, well, we're not going to get peace. Well, damn it! I guess there—that's the point at which the military has their way and get they get the U-boat war. Um, just one one thing: I a want a to a point after after working at this for five months. Yeah, uh, The Germans, final, uh, at least some of the Germans, finally decide that uh, we just have to give up on Wilson. By the way, they're also being lied to and misinformed about why Wilson is delaying and mishandling things so badly because House is dissembling to the German ambassador in Washington, a very mm-hmm. able man named Bernstorff.
0: Isn't this, this part, though, of, of, of Wilson's weakness that you see... Oh, my gosh, you see this in his actions as president at Princeton and later on during Versailles that he really his lack of trust for anybody. I mean, uh, well, he has a strange trust for her house for a while, but um, th- this insistence on in doing everything himself. I mean, there must have been someone there must have been two or three competent people in the State Department to like help him. <laughs> he could he could he could have read what uh, what Theodore Roosevelt uh, did um, that was yes, that, that which that would he did not bother statement. to do. That's which is kind of he never crazy bothered for to his learn historian how historian and political scientist um,
1: right. He never bothered to learn how Roosevelt had done his mediation in 1904 or five, um, which you know he could have learned about that in an hour, mm-hmm. uh, and no one and no one in the State Department bothered to inform him uh, because he's got uh, really a quite mediocre uh, uh, lawyer who's his Secretary of State who has no experience himself in the conduct of real diplomacy, a man named Lansing. Um, he actually does have a couple of good young diplomats in London and Berlin, not the ambassadors. The one, in, uh, the ambassador in London, uh, Page, Wilson doesn't trust because he's so pro, pro-British. His ambassador in Berlin is a Tammany Hall Politico, um, but he's got a very smart young diplomat in the London embassy named Buckler. He's got a a very smart young diplomat in the Berlin embassy named Joseph Gru, who will later become famous Mm -hmm. in other things. And they're actually writing some very nice, very smart reports back, but he doesn't, uh, Wilson doesn't tap them and use them. You You are right in calling out that this crisis, put under the spotlight, one of Wilson's uh, surpassing weaknesses which is um, his solitary style um, and his uh, unwillingness to build a team to uh, an effective team uh, that could help him. Um, So partly he doesn't, the American government uh, is so primitive at this stage uh partly he but partly he's not utilizing the talent that is there uh because of weaknesses in his own personal style and uh, um, so for for all he is this mixture peculiar mixture of very high gifts, but with these very profound flaws uh that I think this book brings out in really in a way more, more powerful and important than any other illustration I know of. Uh, this, was the, this was the supreme test for Wilson. In a way, it's a much more important test than the Versailles Peace Conference, which was a, a terrible, messy situation to begin with, where other countries were bound to have very large roles. This moment in 1617 was the, was the supreme moment. Wilson knew it, he knew it. Uh, he knew with a pressure on him, and he did not know what to do, and he did not know what he did not know. Hmm. It's always the worst thing. <laughs> but the uh, that, um,
0: I, that that's a true story,
1: dangerous even person. so, they, yes, even so, it it's so close. It's such a close call because Wilson is is right on the fundamental goals. He's stumbling his way there. Um, He almost gets there, in fact. This is part of the tragedy of it. As the the British are about to cave, uh, when the Germans finally give up on him and make their move, Wilson thinks that he's beginning to finally figure it out. Um, When the Germans make their move on the U-boat war, Wilson thinks and says that he's absolutely stunned He thinks he's only a few weeks away from calling the peace conference and that it's as if, and he actually confesses this to House. He's completely bewildered. He says, I feel like all of a sudden the world has shifted on its axis. And instead of rotating from east to west is now rotating from west to east. And he can't get his, he says, I can't get my bearings. What's happened? He doesn't understand what has gone wrong in the peace process that's been going on for reasons that become clear when you go through this in the book. And uh, for the rest of his life, he never understood uh, just what had gone wrong, partly because he's undermined by others that he didn't in ways he did not know. Um, And and even more tragically, at the very last moment, he reacts to the German U-boat move and discards and throws aside a parallel effort Bettmann was making, even at that last hour, to give Wilson what he needed to pursue the peace talks. Wilson had asked Bettmann to confide Germany's likely peace terms. And Bettmann had actually complied with that request, which no one else had done, and gave him that information at the same time that the military sends its message about the U-Boat War. And Wilson is so angered by the U-boat war move that he effectively, simply ignores Betmon's move to keep the peace talks going, even though Bettman has promised him that, look, if you, if you get the peace conference, we'll stop the U-boat war as soon as the
0: peace conference begins. Hmm. Let's talk um, about consequences of this. Um, I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get to the actual the. The actual consequences, the historical consequences. We can, but let's briefly talk about the fantasy consequences, the what ifs, um, which are mm-hmm. so immense um, that they it's yeah. um, they, it, it moves into science fiction almost immediately. But it, it's important yep. for people to realize how um, well it's not how just how momentous um, this was. Yes, how momentous this was. How awful the next two years would be. And indeed, as Robert Gervarth Garvath. Um, uh, points out in his book on on the four years after world war one as many people died in the wars that the continuation wars which is what we should really call them um in the russian civil war the war in turkey um the list goes on as many people died in those wars uh, as many people were probably displaced in those wars as have been displaced in the first world war so there yep. are immense consequences
1: yes and so what you get then because all the historians of World War I see this period of 1617, this winter, as the great turning point in the war. So in a way, what my book is about is about why that turning point turned in one turned in one direction instead of another. A turning point in which instead of ending the war, the war widens. It widens to include the United States, which now of course solves the financial problems the Allied side because uh-huh. the United States just opens up the treasury coffers and the money flows. It, uh, the Germans, meanwhile, are less interested in peace because Russia implodes into revolution. If the war does not continue, there is no Bolshevik takeover in Russia. I think every historian of the Russian Revolution would agree that if Russia had gotten out of World War One, there's no realistic scenario in which the Bolsheviks could have seized power in Russia. Therefore, there is no Soviet Union. The, um, the whole unfolding of world history is then hugely different. You don't get the collapse into violent chaos of all of Central and Eastern Europe and the Middle East. Um, it's, uh, it, you don't get the entry, you don't get 2 million doughboys going to Europe. You don't get that kind of engagement of the United States in European politics. Uh, which the, uh, changes Ottoman the Empire course of American. Yep. Yeah. That's, um, the caliphate continues. The, um, possibly. Uh, the possibly. Uh, In some modified constitutional way, uh, uh-huh. it probably would have uh, continued for some time. Uh, the Middle East would not have been carved up into the mm-hmm. British and French mandates. Uh it's just uh, because not, the Ottoman Empire, and not at the end of 1916, the Ottoman Empire had not yet been defeated. Right. Um, in fact, 1916 had been a bad year for the British in the Middle East. They had uh, lost mm-hmm. an army in modern, what's now, Iraq. Um, they, so the, really, world history just takes a very different and much more tragic path because of this failure to end World War I in a situation where uh, the way to end the war is when you pull everything together in this book is is just apparent. Um, in a way, because the story is mo- so moment- momentous, I regard this as the strangest and most consequential history episode I've ever encountered in my career. Uh, it's been a kind of a longish career by now. It's, it's just... And, and and therefore, uh, for some of your listeners, the logical question might be, well, if this is such a big story, why haven't we heard about it for the last hundred right. years? Um, and which was my reaction, too, is as I began to understand the story, I was sort of, my initial reaction is, no. Nah. Uh, it was incredulity. It, it's like, this can't be right. Um, because, you know, why haven't we heard about it? And But the reason is because uh, as, as the war ended, people didn't know this episode had happened. The Germans knew it had happened, and then they had their own investigation, which is available largely just in the German sources, mostly ignored by British and American scholars. The Germans knew they had made a secret peace move, but they themselves did not understand why it had failed because they didn't have access to any of the British and American records. The British and Americans did not really even know the peace move, the German peace move had occurred at all. Um, It was not in their interest after the war to call attention to the episode. So historians and house uh, doctors has published diaries to omit a lot of the key material, and the uh, the episode kind of disappears from view as something that really never happened. It had never come into public view, and so historians. Really, it's not that the historians didn't write about it. They didn't know it had happened hmm. in the fall and early winter of 1916-17. So therefore, the, it, you only begin to get historical understanding that this episode has occurred, maybe starts coming out, oh, 40, 50 years after the war, as more evidence begins to leach out and a few historians begin to start piecing together some of it but then you you there're only two or three people who are reading across the sources to understand what happened if you only look at the german stuff or only look at the british or only look at the american evidence you cannot you cannot piece together this story properly and you can't piece together uh accurately what happened unless you compare the stuff side by side and see um what House is saying he tells the Germans, and what the Germans are reporting back, and and all of that. So you have to read across these different archives to really be able to assemble all the puzzle pieces so that the picture suddenly and startlingly emerges to you. Um, I'm not the only person who's beginning to see pieces of this. Uh, There's a a couple of very good scholars working in England. Uh, One, Holger Offlerbach, who's been doing very good work on the German side. Another named Dan Larson at Cambridge, who has an excellent book coming out later this year called Plotting for Peace that hits this very hard from the British side. So um, I I don't want, my position is not as eccentric as it may seem. Uh, Others are seeing their pieces (laughs) of this too. But I think mine is the only book that steps back and sees the
0: whole elephant. Let me, uh, uh, before we close, let me ask you a question about genre uh, or or sub-discipline. A hundred years ago, a lot of history books were a a lot like this book. They were about uh, diplomatic history. It was a substantial uh, uh, percentage of of output. Um, It's now very far from being a substantial piece of output uh, or piece of the pie. Um, military historians complain about how they're marginalized. Diplomatic historians, you know, at the other end of the bar probably just ask for another drink and, you know, they're even more marginalized. Um, You know, there are a lot of good reasons uh, for that marginalization. A lot of great history has been written and all sorts of different things have been explored. Uh, But um, what's been lost by a diplomatic history being less important? And is that for historians or for readers or for practitioners? I mean, you've been a practicing diplomat for most of your life. Um, What has been lost for um, diplomats by the loss of diplomatic history?
1: Well, it's it's interesting that you should make that observation. Uh, I just got a very nice review uh, of the book in the Times Literary Supplement, the TLS, uh, that's written by another well-known historian named Neil Ferguson. and. Uh, the uh, second paragraph in Ferguson's review begins this way with these words, the road less traveled is not a fashionable work. It is a masterpiece of diplomatic history, a subfield now largely extinct at American universities. It is also a page turning narrative, et et cetera, et cetera. And then he goes on to say some very nice things. I I will confess to having read that review. Yeah. So as so, part, um, part of my homework. <laughs> so but he he made the same point that you've made that this is this field has been neglected. And here and I I my now I'm a former diplomat myself. And mm. uh, the term diplomatic history is one of these phrases that just I think just turns people off. I think yeah. diplomatic history, it just conjures an image of, oh, I'm reading about Notes being passed back and forth, uh, and the intricacies of uh, arcane negotiations,
0: and it just sounds boring, Frank. It just sounds boring. No, I mean,
1: um, I and, have to say it does. And,
0: I hear the thing. I hear. I hear people talk. It's going to. I'm about to write what. I hear diplomatic history, and I hear. I'm about to write a book about people talking in a room. And I <laughs> right. I, I and mainly, instead, I immediately uh, the, want to go to sleep yes
1: but what then make what i think makes this book uh, i mean neil was very kind to say he certainly had no he found the book fascinating to read and you've read it so you can judge for yourself mm-hmm. I agree. but what makes it's, the book it's... interesting in a way you you put people off if you tell them it's about diplomatic history if you just if you tell them it's about how people tried to end the, one of the greatest wars in human history and almost did it ah well they might be interested in that. but really what diplomacy is, is diplomacy is just about how do I solve problems peacefully. If you think it's just a way of solving problems. And if you're interested in how to solve certain kinds of problems, uh, including uh, like, how do, if I wanted to bring this awful war to an end, here I've like, I've got one of the most colossal, tragic problems in all of human history. Mm And my question is, okay, well, is there any way out? Is there any way to end this? Well, that's a problem. If I told you that that problem was inside of solution, you might be interested in how to try to go about solving that problem. And then you and well, that's worth studying. That's an, and if you think about it as a puzzle, how do we, if we're really close and this is actually doable, how can we do it? that how to solve the problem is a really i think can really interest people people are interested in how to solve big problems they're interested in kind of like how to do things and if you put it that way it's like well there are really there are two ways to solve these sorts of problems one is by blowing things up and killing people which is you can call military history which is people are happy to read because it's exciting And they said, well, let's suppose we want to try to solve these giant problems without blowing things up and killing people. Um, But if I tell them, well, that's diplomatic history, oh, that's that's not nearly as exciting. (laughs) I don't want to read that. Um, But actually, the the course of trying to solve this problem can be pretty exciting because um, it's gripping how close they get. It's gripping the kind of what the, the personality issues drive this story. This is not a story in which they don't solve the problem because they disagree about one or another issue. That's This is not because they had some sort of irreconcilable position about, oh, Belgium, and therefore they couldn't solve it. This, is, this was not an issue-driven failure. This is a failure driven by um, personalities and the way they mesh, and their uh, their tortuous inability to see the right solution—it's it's deflected by the personal political ambitions of the British Prime Minister David Lloyd George, and the way he's trying to manipulate the situation for his political advantage and to gain supreme power. It's uh, it's deflected in part by the dissembling connivances, vanity, and foolishness of Edward House, by the pe- peculiar makeup and strengths and weaknesses of Woodrow Wilson. If you think about it in those terms, uh, of this, the story is as gripping a drama as uh, any military story could be. And in fact, uh, um, I think quite a lot more interesting because it turns so much more on humans and less on machines
0: let's uh that's a beautifully um put uh if this is about problem solving then that that sort of uh, segues very nicely into my my final question for you um one of my perennial um skepticisms on this podcast is whether or not we can gain lessons uh, from history uh for the future for, for the present and uh but if if diplomatic history, if if lots of history is about looking at how people solve problems, then I guess your answer is very much in the affirmative. We can learn something from investigating the way people tried, attempted to solve complex problems. Oh, absolutely.
1: Uh, now, um, whether pe- well, whether people learn it or not it varies according to their lives, um, but one reason i hope people will pay attention to this book even if they're not interested in history or world war one is because it demystifies and unpacks how to um how to go about unwinding and solving a terrifying problem i'm involved right now for instance in a lot of work and discussions about the taiwan issue uh, in current events Um, and It's uh, where we're actually trying to defuse a crisis. And in general, people want to defuse a crisis. They don't want a war. Okay, we agree on the goals. How to do that? How to do that? And that's, um, I think most people, well, I guess we need to talk about stuff somehow, but to demystify that and show how it can be done and learn that it's possible even in a, situation as bad as World War I was at the midpoint. Uh, I I think that that can shed a lot of light on, possibi- on, on possibilities for problem solving
0: to those people who are interested in learning how to solve such problems. Well, my guest today has been Philip Zellico. He's author of The Road Less Traveled, The Secret Battle to End the Great War, 1916-1917. Philip Zellico, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Oh, it's it's my pleasure.